And I just remember taking bioethics from you on a study abroad and having a really hard time ever finding time to teach. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that too. I just remember, yeah, we, I just remember you telling your story about the uh, the brain infection while you were standing on the bus while we were driving through the Alps. Yeah, yeah, that was that was an adventure. <laughs> I just remember you carrying you dead. Yeah, from behind the bush. That's that's my that's my memory. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, this is it, my worst nightmare. You killed a oh, student. No. I just passed out and uh, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good time. An exciting time. This is a really exciting time. Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. Let's begin with some background into you two, Ash and Steve. Uh, so if you guys could give us just a little bit of uh, context for who you are, what brings you to this conversation, and at what point did you realize that the earth was something that you cared about? Um, I, do you want me to go first or? Go for it, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm Steve Peck. I'm a, a, a biology professor at Brigham Young University. I teach classes in bioethics and history and philosophy of biology and ecology and population genetics and things like that. Uh, my pronouns are uh, his and him. I... I'm trying to, th I, I, the earth has always been a part of my life. I grew up in a very camping family. I grew up in Moab, Utah, and the, the natural world has been my playground for as long as I can remember. And so I, uh, I sort of feel like the roots of my becoming an ecologist really had some just seemed natural to me it's what i wanted to do what i loved where i wanted to be so that's me excellent well i'm ashling rowan i go by ash for short my pronouns are they them and sometimes he him um i am an artist writer parent uh, i founded a project known as gem stories which is short for gender gender expansive Mormons, um, just to kind of give a space for uh, Latter-day Saints, ex-Mormons, anyone kind of in that umbrella who is also gender expansive. So whether that's transgender, intersex, some kind of like defying the norms of gender as we understand it to give these people space to talk about our experiences um, with the church and how those things intersect. Um, as far as the earth, I wouldn't say I've ever been like a super outdoorsy person but I have always been interested in the natural side of things like animals and things like that. 
So I would say it's something that like I've gradually grown into more awareness of and wanting to develop more of a relationship with this planet that we call home. Right on. Cool. Well, the, uh, the topic for today's episode is queerness and the wild earth. And, uh, I, uh, I, when, when Abby and I were kind of concepting this season, I feel like I say this before every episode, but when, but when Abby and I were concepting the season, this was an episode that we kind of developed, uh, late in the game where we were like, I feel like we need to have an episode, you know, if we've had an episode on, on wild women, we we're going to have an episode on wild men. I feel like we need to have an episode where we get into queerness and we really, um, like kind of dive into it because I feel like, I feel like in our, in the, uh, our cultural conversations around queerness and family and gender and sexuality in, uh, in like America and the Western, you know, the Western world at large and as well specifically within Mormonism, it feels really disconnected from everything. And we're really just kind of talking about things in our kind of, in our, our, in our echo chambers and it doesn't feel really connected or grounded in reality anymore. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with this conversation was reconnect queerness back to the earth and kind of create a grounding and a context for the conversations that we have about those things, um, in our communities. So, uh, um, so, uh, so why queerness and wildness? Why, how do those things go together? Um, I think queerness itself is just inherently very wild. Um, it's hard to define. It goes against sort of a presupposed order of things and it challenges a lot of things that we think that we believe. And I think wildness is the same way. It's something that um, maybe foreign territory is something that we need to explore and delve into more. Yeah, I, I, uh, the whole, the whole concept intrigued me and I am, am, am still thinking it through, I think, because I, I, I want to, to, to recognize queer spaces and wild spaces. And I, I also, though, want to recognize the earth as it is. I want to recognize that, that it's difficult to, I, I was thinking, uh, I was reading uh, queer environmentalists and they, they were wrestling with this idea and they were, they were thinking through, well, we can't just use queer as different. We can't create just that a, 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 a different space. Like I'm reading The Hobbit right now. And <laughs> the, the chapter is called Queer Lodgings. And it's it, using this old sense of the word that just meant different or unusual. And I think queerness has to be grounded in sexuality and gender and all of these things and 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 mapping that onto the earth I think is vital and I I and so I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation where we can explore it and see what we mean how how we we contextualize that idea yeah in our in kind of our pre-conversation where we were doing we were spending some time outlining um I think we, we had talked about that you know it's kind of, uh, exciting right now, um, because we're on the edge of discovery about, you know, sexuality and gender. Um, and, uh, so because of that, we're bound to be wrong in some ways 
in our conversation, right? That because it's the, the conversation, we're kind of on the frontier that we're going to be wrong, but in some ways we might be really right. And so we're, I think, um, in this conversation, we need to, you know, give ourselves the, the grace and the kind of the space to be able to just have this conversation and take what works and abandon what doesn't and, uh, and kind of go from there. Um, so before we begin, Steve, just like you said, I think we need to set some like working definitions for sexuality, for gender and for queerness so that we can have a good common vocabulary. Uh, so let's, let's start there. Uh, Ash or Steve, you guys want to jump into that? Give us some working definitions. Yeah, so I think gender is something that is an interplay of cultural and biological elements. There's definitely something that is innate about gender, and that experience can be different for people who are cisgender, and that would be someone whose gender does align with what they were assigned at birth, um, whereas someone who's transgender would be someone whose internal sense of identity maybe is at odds in some way with what they were presumed to be when they were born and the way that they've been raised. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of gender is cultural. It's sort of like how we interpret and the things that we project onto our biology and the roles that we play within society. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. A, a lot of my thinking has been informed by a trans woman, uh, Joan Roughgarden. Uh, she, she's written a book on, on and, uh, exactly what, what biological definitions of sex are and, what, by, by, and, 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 and trying, to, trying to sort through. I like what Ash just said there with this idea that we are this really complex thing where we're not genetic determinate determination uh, is, is really a myth. Uh, we, are, we are biological beings, we're cultural beings, we're complex, our, our brains are complex, our, our, our cultures are complex, and they're amazingly rich in terms of the diversity of experience and, and what we go through as humans. So I think, I think I think that's a, a great way to open the conversation. Queerness also has to do with, with sexuality, with relationships, um, romantical or sexual attraction. So it's all these different dynamics at play. And I do think it isn't just biological or just spiritual. Like there are these components of both these elements that are interplaying. And so I think that that is a key component of why we do need to bring back like this natural discussion into it um, and consider like, how does that inform who we are as people? Um, can, can you guys uh, talk a little bit about how, you know, I mentioned that we're kind of on the frontier right now. Um, can you, can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, it's just a very rapidly cha changing field. The more that we, discover like what even is queerness the way that like um the queer culture sort of has like these internal discussions about various terminology um and as that history progresses you know some more things like oh this term that we used might be more outdated as we gain more information and oh that wasn't sensitively discussed before and now that we can kind of like approach it with better knowledge um 
which I kind of find very Mormon in a way, this idea of like ongoing revelation and being able to bring greater (laughs) truth and light into the subject. Like, I love that. There's just this frontier edge of discovery that we get to be on the frontier of. I love that notion. I, 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 I think that that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things that, that I've written quite a bit about is the idea of how science informs theology. And I think that's one of the things that I've, I've argued for and promoted that our theology has to be grounded in realities. And the best window into reality is in fact, science and study and looking at biology and looking, and, and I, I think anthropology and culture and all those things. Are, are useful and important. I would say a lot of this is being newly discussed because it hasn't been socially acceptable to even acknowledge that it's there, much less to, you know, safely and authentically be yourself. And so that's why it seems to be becoming more, more popular, like, because it's being brought more to the forefront of people's awareness, whereas before it's been relegated to the shadows a lot of the time. I think that this brings up an interesting connection too, which, um, you know, you guys weren't uh, there, but for our previous recording as well, we talked about this idea of intersectionality um, and kind of the crossovers and similarities between some of these kind of burgeoning social frontiers as well, um, and how these connect really well to environmental issues um, and topics because of, you know, you know, something I'm making a connection now is kind of their, um, like contemporary place. Um, and this, this kind of exploratory, uh, phase, um, and, and the newness that they, they all are. Um, and, and that like that allows these, these two ideas to connect in the way that they're both kind of, um, developing, um, and our understanding of them develops, um, and the many different things that we have to take into account as we begin to discuss these more and more, um, and try to understand them, uh, you know, in a more, uh, comprehensive way. Um, and so I think that's, you know, yet another layer that kind of adds to this idea of the comparison between queerness and the wilderness as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I would say I feel like with both, there's this element of reclaiming knowledge as well. Like it's not just that we're learning new things, but also sort of rediscovering the way that things have been previously that maybe was hidden out of nefarious means. And now we're like, oh, like maybe that was, we were onto something there, both in terms of how we care for the planet and how we understand ourselves and how we interrelate to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think an example from like just even our lifetimes is that, you know, when I was a kid, it was it was just gay. Right. And then at some point it was LGBTQ and then that got added on LGBTQ plus and then LGBTQIA plus. And now I think we're kind of gravitating towards just queer as an umbrella term, um, which I think is a good demonstration of what we mean by we're kind of on the frontier of this and it's changing all the time as we as as things are open and as we we just get more comfortable talking about these things with new identities. Um, I think, um, the reason, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation was because at least in the larger Mormon community, I think that queerness is the issue of our times. Um, and our response to queerness will largely determine the trajectory and success of the LDS church and the broader Mormon project into the next century. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? 
I absolutely agree with that. It's a huge issue for people our age. And for me personally, it was something that has informed my spiritual trajectory. Um, I mean, I was raised in the LDS church in Utah. It was sort of core to who I am. And once I started to realize, oh, I'm not a cishet person, I don't know how I can make this work anymore because the church doesn't really provide any sort of paths for people like us. Like we're not part of the mold. And so we're not considered. Um, and that's part of why I started the Gem Stories Project, just to show that we can make space for these kind of discussions and for these experiences. And so it really is something that people are kind of working out on their own. Either I can make this work with the church or I can't or somewhere in between, which is kind of where I'm at right now. Um, and I think that the institution is going to have to grapple with it more and more as time goes on. That's why I think these conversations are so important. I, 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 I keep mentioning Joan Roughgarden, but she was a, a transitional um, thinker in my life. I, I, before she had um, uh, transitioned to being a woman, I had a copy of then his book on my bedside and was probably the most influential in, in, uh, evolutionary biologist. Interesting thing is she, she identifies as she. She uh, attracted my attention because she was a devout Christian, even though she was um, an evolutionary biologist, which in, in my lifetime, there's been a transition in that too. I, I, uh, I was a little bit controversial in my ward because I was an evolutionary, I was training in evolutionary biology. And, and so when uh, Jonathan Trance uh, uh, became, became Joan, it was a shock to me. It was, um, she was genuinely my hero. And I had to grapple with that kind of change for the first time. And I realized there was a lot I didn't know. And I didn't, understand and I and like when I was on my mission I remember I told this person who wanted to be baptized that they couldn't until they believed in evolution <laughs> <laughs> and I said that that's that you know you, you've got you've got to change that belief and so I I recognized in 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 Joan something I didn't understand that I needed to to understand, I needed to to place her in my cosmology in a way, and so that became for me a transitional moment where I had to start thinking this and confronting that people have different experiences in terms of uh, gender and attraction. And and one of the first books I read after 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 uh, she changed was her, her book on evolutionary rainbows. And, and for me, that was, that was just this, this powerful moment of recognizing that my experience needed to be broader, that I needed to understand what others had experienced and what others were, were feeling and, 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 and let them be the legitimate guide to to what they are experiencing not not try to not try to impose what i think are the categories of humanness but but let their experience uh, 
affect me. And that was, that was really a moment for me to, to, to look at myself and my, my categories and, and reform them. I think that's a huge part of what queerness is and does is it tends to shine a light on those areas of our understanding, whether just socially or theologically or both. Mm -hmm. It says, hey, there's something here that we can delve into further. I think there's I, something, oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. no, I was just gonna say, I think that is very challenging for especially the LDS church as an institution because now we have a Pandora's box that opens up all kinds of questions. Like, what do we do with the priesthood and things like that? Like, I think they'd rather just kind of like tamp it back down and pretend it doesn't exist. But the more that people are talking about the sort of thing and living our authentic experiences, they're not going to be able to ignore it. Yeah, and I think there's something so fitting about having, you know, Steve, you here as an evolutionary biologist, too, in that. Um, you know, at one point that challenged a lot of our paradigms as members of the church, right? And and um, that sometimes when we do that, we kind of have to sit with discomfort, um, but also that it allows us to recognize that these ideas don't have to be mutually exclusive, that they can be kind of inclusive and, and perhaps instead of changing our paradigms, rather it expands them, which is why I also like this, this idea of queerness as opposed to perhaps more uh, definitive labels that it, that it functions more expansively than just saying, you know, like Madison said at the beginning, uh, you know, just that you were gay or you, that there are these labels that you can um, necessarily prescribe, um, but that rather it functions a little bit more dynamically um, and inclusively. And I really like that idea um, and, and something that I hope, you know, we continue to foster uh, as we develop these ideas within conversations amongst other members. Yeah. And it's a complex and nuanced topic that doesn't fit into easy labels that oh, you're this thing and you're this thing. And I think that's true within biology too. Like, what is a species and how do they interrelate with each other? So, yeah, That's exactly right. All of our, our categories about species are being challenged by the things that we're discovering, the, the, the genuine diversity of, of the way that Earth's organisms have have encountered their environment has has changed all kinds of our thinking. It's it's a new world in biology. I, the, the changes that I've seen there's there used to be a kind of species essentialism that that species were categories that that that, that could that, I mean at, by Darwin's time they even they could they could change and and and, and develop, but there was something more stable about what it was and now biologists are even questioning the concept of species and in a lot of ways that are are there are voices arguing now that we just have to throw out the entire concept there's too much variety and there's too many differences and so it's been fun and and these conversations i think have been really productive the the, the kind of of discussion we're having here and the the, the kinds of discussion that that biologists are having in some ways are resonant because 
there's this attempt to get past categories and to look at what's there instead of what things have to fit where, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, uh, so, you know, our, as we talk about like categories or our paradigms or our, you know, the, the kind of the boxes that we sort the world into in our brains, um, I feel like that's kind of what's happened to our discourse on, uh, on queerness in our, in our society is that we're just stuck in those categories. And, and even, even when, you know, we're trying to be allies, we sometimes still get stuck in those categories. And I think Ash, um, and Steve in both of, you know, your experiences, Steve with, uh, with that scientist, Joan and Ash with the, the, uh, GEM or the gem stories is that there's something in, um, reconnecting our experience to reality that changes us. Um, and I think that part of why, uh, I, was interested in having this conversation was that I, I think regrounding the conversation in, in the earth, um, is it like a fresh new herm hermeneutic or lens through which to look at queerness that we just haven't really captured yet. Like it's just not something that is in our conversations except for like in Ted talks or in, you know, these obscure books or academic papers, right? It's not in our kind of collective communal discourse. So, why is turning to the earth as a new lens or as a fresh hermeneutic, a way of uh, a, a new way of approaching queerness or a, a good way of approaching queerness? I think queerness is inherently an embodied experience because it's something that we feel in our bodies and um, in the ways that we interact with other, other people and with our own body. Um, and so talking about it theoretically and stuff just sort of doesn't, doesn't do the subject justice because you're not really approaching the whole experience. Um, and then also talking about this getting, getting away from categories, like that's a lot of what like our intellect and our logic has brought to it. But if we want to get past that, we have to get back into what does it actually mean as a lived experience? Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I, I, I feel like, so I, maybe, and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, I, I think Abby and, and Madison, you talked with uh, uh, Catherine Sontag. Yes, we did. And looked at the uh, and 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 she's 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 a fantastic poet. And I, I look at what she's doing, and she's she's looking at the earth as in in a gendered way. She's not saying the earth is gendered, but she's looking at it in a gender a gendered way. She's she's looking at um, the, the 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 divine feminine from a, a perspective of of her her gender, and and it's turned out to be really productive. I think both artistically and and um, in terms of of what it brings to the way we look at the earth and, and the way we value the earth and the way that we define ethics of the earth. And I think there's a similar opportunity for queerness to do the same thing, to, to look at the earth through a queer lens and to ask what this brings to our knowledge of how we treat the earth, what the earth is, what sort of ethics are framed thereby, what sort of artistic, um, I'm gonna put in a plug for Ash's book, right now that's coming out from, from BCC Press. It's amazing. Yes, it is. The, the, the art, the, the writing, everything about it is, is really 
looking at things in a, a, a in a sense of more belonging and more it's a very fun book uh, I, I i it's a it's a pleasure to read and i think that we this is this is one of the things that i think that looking at the earth through a queer lens can provide is new ways to engage artistically with the earth and with all all the all sort of the I see humans as 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 this wonderful thing that includes art and includes science and it includes our faith and all of these things combine into something really beautiful and important and aesthetically wonderful and so I think bringing a a, a, a clearer a, a queer lens to this could do some of the work that's come out of the work on feminism and the earth in the same way. So that's, that's something that, that I, I, I think is important. So I think, um, Another piece of, of the puzzle for like of just context and kind of uh, world building before we jump into like the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is uh, I think it may also be helpful to deconstruct in brief um, the ontology and by ontology, I mean like origins of human beings or homo, homo sapiens and the origins on this planet. Uh, in a future season, Steve, I want to really delve into the theory of evolution and our embeddedness in the tree of life. Um, but for now, for this conversation, uh, I feel it's necessary to accept and embrace the reality that humans emerged from this world and our manifestations of it rather than being placed on it uh, in some primordial garden. Uh, can you un unpack this a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I could probably spend like <laughs> <laughs> the next few hours on this. Yes, let's do it. Wanted, uh, I, I, let me see if I can to uh, come to a shorter version. Yes, we we are. I always, I always like to think of it in in terms of my grandmothers. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, there's a famous book, Our Inner Fish, but there's been this long, and, and by, by, by grandmothers, mothers is a, in a way, a sexual rather than a gendered identity. And uh, maybe, maybe we can define <laughs> uh, the difference really briefly, because um, sex has been on earth for a very long time. I mean, uh, and, and the designation we give to, to sexual uh, identity, uh, they're not, I, I'm trying to find the right word because like a tree doesn't have a self-identity, it's just is, and we, and we designate one, one sex male and one sex female, and that's different than the genders that, that we give to give in the diversity of human culture as, as Ash has pointed out. Um, and biologic, sexual differences in biology come down to really sort of a simple idea. It's not XY chromosomes. It's not anything like that. It's the size of the gamete. <laughs> that's, that's the universal that holds for plants and animals where males are the designation for 
or uh, one sex that has lots and lots of, 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 um, of light sperm or pollen or, or whatever we were, what organisms were looking at. And the, the female is the, the organism that has the larger, um, uh, this, this sounds really strange, but, but essentially the, 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 the largest um, reproductive uh, seed. So uh, I, this comes out of uh, definitions for, for typical biology because it holds almost universally for plants and animals. And one of the things uh, that I do have this long history from very ancient 500 million years ago, there were, there were, there was something that is my ancestor. We'd come out of deep earth. Our, 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 our bodies are constructed in, in times measured in eons. And we have this evolutionary history that's, that's, that moved through amphibians and therapsid reptiles, through mammals, to primates, to, to fairly, in comparison, recent times, 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens shows up. And, and we were a complex species like it's never been seen before. Our brains are enormous. Our, our culture is complex about 50,000, I'm speaking really in general terms, about 50,000 years ago, all of a sudden, things like art became really important. We, we began to see the world in terms of symbols. We, 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 we began to be able to recognize an immense complexity as language develops. And so we do have this long evolutionary history in terms of our body. We, we are beings of the earth in that way. And that is not trivial. That's how we see the world. We see the world through this lens of being human. And, and being human captures a lot of symbolic rep representation, the way we engage the world, the way that we culturally see the world. It, it's, 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 our brains are one of the most complex structures in the universe literally one of the most complex structures that there is. And I, I'm really, I'm really happy about this deep time element of me. I think that that's important. And I think that's important because it connects us to the earth. It connects us to all other species. It connects us to the, the, the broader community of earth. And I think there's something important in that. I, it also opens the door to the importance of the diversity of, of expression of who we are in, in terms of, of gender and attraction and all of these different combinations. We are, we are immensely complex and we need to recognize that. And I wanna say, something, if it's okay, about my, my 
foundational faith treatment is one that's, that's, I think, unique to humans. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I won't make that claim, but I will say that it's a part of us. Uh, I, I, I had dogs that appeared to, to love. I don't know. <laughs> but for me, the foundational human thing that we can do is love. And this is what my religion requires of me. I, I think that love is the foundation of my faith. And this is what I read in the scriptures. Um, interestingly, I, I was reviewing my Joan Roughgarden, and she, as a Christian, talks about the biblical imperative of love, of others, of neighbors, of all of these things that she, as a Christian, has embraced that often excludes people. And I see no justification for exclusion biblically. I, I see that our duty, if, if duty's not even the right word I'm looking for, our, our lived experience as humans is to learn to love everyone. I, 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 I firmly believe that that's the only expression of my faith, uh, my, my, my faith in the church, my, my faith as a Christian, my faith as a uh, uh, a part of the larger, larger axle religions like Buddhism and Muslim, there's the same element that requires us to love. And so, where am I going with this? Oh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm rambling. So just roll with it. Good rambling. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but I'm rambling about what I think often gets got gets ignored in discussions of, of queerness is that we we are demanded to love by who we are uh, and I, I think that that those who want to exclude queer people because um, they feel like they don't fit in the categories they like or they don't fit or are, are, are missing the, the most basic element of of religious faith. Yeah, exclusion to me is something that is entirely fabricated by humans. Because if we do believe that God is the author of all this diversity that's occurred throughout through evolution, it would be a dishonor to God to try to tamp any of it out and to say that this isn't holy just because some of us deem it to not be so, like God has said otherwise. And that's been my experience as a trans person and a lot of what I've seen other gender expansive people and other queer people have experienced is we feel that we are honoring our highest calling and the most innate sense of who we've been created to be by allowing ourselves to be how how we were created and to do anything else is to sort of lie and be ashamed of something that should be natural and holy and sacred abby you got anything no i just I'm thinking of how that kind of segues into your next question, Madison. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, uh, I, the reason I think we need to, uh, embrace kind of human beings as, as emerging from the earth, right. And embracing our evolutionary, uh, ancestry is that it, it, it embeds us in the world. 
Um, and so that when we're uh, when we're looking at the earth to understand queerness, what we're really doing is we're looking to our own family to learn about what it means to be alive on earth. And uh, and that's what I see as inclusion. Right. That um, that. Uh, yeah. Anyways. And so I think what in at least in religious circles, when we talk about queerness, um, we get kind of get high centered on the story of Adam and Eve. Um, and uh, well, you know, I'm I'm really willing to hold a high degree of uncertainty around the, the literalness of Adam and Eve. Um, I think at least in terms of this conversation, if, you know, if on the, you know, for surface level, if we just approach Adam and Eve as mythological figures rather than, than literal figures, um, that might help us move forward in this conversation. Are we comfortable with this? Can we accept um, Adam and Eve as archetypal symbols for the masculine and feminine inside of all of us? Yeah, I'm good with that. How can that, like, can we talk about how that, like, uh, can help us as we, as we learn to, to hold something more mythologically, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. Right. Yeah. I think there's almost something that can be more true about something that's held as an archetype because you're boiling something down to its bare essentials and that getting to the meat of the matter. But yeah, I mean, Adam and Eve, um, as a story, I have actually seen some interesting queer readings of them because you have Adam who, as we understand it, was created by uh, God, Jesus, like this masculine energy as an act of creation. And then if you have Eve who's drawn out of his body, would that mean she's genetically male as well? Like, how does that even work? And again, like, if we're not talking about it literally, perhaps it doesn't matter, but just as a spiritual, theological consideration i think it's interesting to consider how even though they're often held up as the standard man and the standard woman like perhaps even that's something that's kind of been lost and muddied over i also think even in a literal interpretation if if you know we as unique uh members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um have this understanding of continued revelation um, or, you know, the idea that certain laws or understanding can be replaced over time, um, then, then that gives way or allows for opportunities for that very um, kind of staunch interpretation of the two of their identities to be the only two identities, I guess. Um, so in some ways, I think there is still room for interpretation, even in perhaps a more literal understanding of Adam and Eve. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be said, you know, biblically, not just in the story of Adam and Eve, um, but, you know, in other, other stories that we find as well in the Bible for, for this kind of interpretation um, for perhaps more nuance than um, the, the typical kind of heteronormative readings of these things can offer. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that ancient uh, Hebrew people didn't take the, the story as uh, a literal. In fact, there's some work um, by an by a evangelical biblical scholar has argued pretty persuasively, which is really interesting, I think, to, to Latter-day Saints, is the 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 original Genesis was in fact a, a temple story. It was, it was not meant 
as an origin story. It was meant as a, a um, story about whose people uh, they were and, and not, not really, it, it wasn't really meant to be a, a um, cosmological story. It was meant to be a, an origin story of, of the, the, the people in the wilderness. And I, I, I think there's uh, that opens a lot of interpretive power into looking at what it means to be a people. It, 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 it's not a reading that, that necessitates a, a kind of um, necessarily essentialism about who Adam and Eve were, but it, 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 it means what does it mean to be this, this diverse and, and powerful group of, of people who had a project together to survive this wilderness and, 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 and be a foundational force in, in something new uh, in, in the world. And I think, I think that's an, an especially interesting way to look at it is, is what does it mean to be a people? How do we, how do we surround everyone in this desert of earth life and, and surround this, this, this group and hold them all dear, um, no matter, no matter uh, who they are or, or, or how we perceive them. It's, it's the, it's, we, we, we want to hold on to everyone. And I think, I think that's, that's a wonderful story and reading of Adam and Eve in a way. It, 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 um, it, 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 it says there is this uniting force that we have to hold on to. And it means everybody. It means everybody that the, 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 the Israelites were walking through this wilderness. And, and I, I think that's important. I think it's important that we, we make that a part of our narrative is, is no one's going to be left behind, that we're not going to exclude anybody. We're, we're going to hold on to everyone. We're going to hold on to um, uh, uh, right now, our youth, we're going to hold on to the, 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 the people who are struggling. We're going to hold on to our queer uh, fellows. We're not fellows. Um, our, 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 uh, here's, here's where language fails me. I want to say our queer brothers and sisters, but I mean more than that. I mean my queer brothers and sisters and, and my, my transgender uh, relations and 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 all of, all of this these language problems that i struggle with i see in the roots of category problems and this is i'm 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 stuttering but i'm i'm really looking for inclusive language that i want everyone here i want everybody in this wilderness Tent. I want everybody to, to feel like they belong and they aren't excluded and that they are cherished and they are loved. And I think that's a, a, a framing of Adam and Eve as the foundation of a people who stick together. I think why, what at least I've learned throughout doing this podcast, and I'm sure Abby can, can speak to the same, is that um, 
humans, we want belonging. We want to belong, right? And we've got these human groups that we've constructed in families and, and you know, communal groups and bio, uh, bio-centric groups or whatever, or ethno groups. Um, and, and, you know, when we draw these, these circles of, of belonging, we're inevitably going to draw someone on the outside of it the way just by, just by the, the very nature of drawing a, a circle, we're, we're going to exclude someone. And that that's inherently problematic when we, when we cling so tightly to the ways that these circles have been drawn. And that what I've learned over doing this podcast is that what we can do is we can relax back into the earth as the biggest circle that there is that includes everything. Um, and that, that the earth can itself model for us how to be inclusive and also while also honoring diversity that there's oneness and diversity in this earth. And that as we look to the earth, the earth can kind of mirror that back to us on how to do that. I agree. Cool. Until we discover an extra solar planet. I know. <laughs> well, and that's when it gets complicated. James Webb Space, Space Telescope, Peter's going to start sending us pictures. <laughs> hey, all. Thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind-the-scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's going to be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, Utah, to 52886. All right. Um, so let's jump into the second half of this then. Um, Steve, uh, is queerness simply a human phenomenon or is it present in the natural world? So this is a, this is, this is a, this is a good question. And I think because it's a cultural identity, I, I think it's probably tends to be only in humans because they can self-reflect. Um, there are, there are, I mean, I'm hesitating because there's a, a sense that there are culturated others as well as humans um, chimpanzees and 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 other things but i think um so for example there's a rich literature on what they they term in ethnographic stories as uh, same-sex behavior and they they call it that because they don't know what's going on internally they don't know what the animals are feeling what 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 how how they would self-identify so they 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 use this um, biological category of same-sex behavior. What they mean by that is is mating behaviors between uh, animals of the same sex, and so um, it's everywhere in the animal world in terms <laughs> of uh, about ten percent of dolphins uh, exhibit same-sex behavior. 
it's it's found in lots and lots of birds it's found in lots and lots of um, organisms all over the place it's not a um, uh, an unknown behavior there's 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 famous cases of, 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 of uh, same-sex penguins uh, stealing eggs from other penguins <laughs> and then raising chicks <laughs> um, uh, geese all, all, all kinds of, of of mountain mountain sheep I mean it's it's just not uncommon at all and so when you say is gender only a biological category it is in the sense uh, that that Abby or um, Ash talked about uh, right at the beginning where it is this complex cultural biological uh, emergent property uh, but uh, gender probably is a, is a human category. There's this quote from Bell Hooks that I really like. Um, queer not as being about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, but queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. And so for me, when I'm talking about queerness as a category, it's almost a reaction to something Whereas I think that these things occur naturally in animals because they don't have like shame and fear around it. They don't categorize it. For humans, um, there is there, there are those elements that we bring into it socially and culturally. Like when I say that I'm non-binary, that's only because like it's a reaction to the binary. That's something that I define myself outside of. But there's like not really a proper specific term for it. So I'm kind of defining myself as this act of like rebellion to these categories and these structures that have been imposed on natural diversity. I think that's why queerness is sort of different for humans rather than it is for animals. I think that's a great quote, a, a, a great distinction as well. I think, I think, um, I, 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 I feel like that really captures this human dimension that allows it to be grounded though in all the realities that we face as humans so thanks for that i won't, I won't write that down <laughs> it's in the outline oh good <laughs> um i think why this is such an important like this was an aha moment for me right where it was like oh like same-sex behavior, you know, I know that there's a lot, Steve, like you're saying that like we kind of put onto it as human beings wrapped up in around romance, wrapped up around sexuality, wrapped up around culture and stuff. But to see that, that same-sex behavior is, is exhibited in the natural natural world in not just not just mammals, but in, you know, in trees and in birds and stuff like it is, it was kind of an eye-opening moment for me. Um, because I, I had a conversation with someone at a, at a, uh, a conference this, this last summer. Um, and we were, we were talking about, about queerness in, in Mormonism and in, you know, the Western American culture at large. Um, and, uh, I, I referenced this, this, this fact about the natural world that, 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 you know, trees are dioecious and have, have aspects of, of, uh, you know, they both have male and female parts and can self fertilize and that there are, you know, 23,000 combinations of, of mushroom genders or something like that. Um, and, uh, this, this, 
this person was, she thought that I was overplaying my hand and I was like, no, I, I promise you that this is something that happens quite naturally in the natural world. Um, and I can, I know that what their, their perspective that they were coming from was that it was almost as though, um, the, the phrase that was used was transgenderism as though it was an ideology that was, that was almost like a disease or an infection in the human mind that was unique to the human, the human experience. And, uh, I was very taken aback by that because I'd never kind of experienced a conversation around queerness as though it was, as though it was an ideology people were falling prey to. Um, and, uh, and so, but I think what we, well, by grounding queerness in, uh, in, kind of our natural, um, embeddedness in the earth, what it does is it kind of liberates us from that, that idea that, that queerness is somehow an ideology that we're just being suckered into, right? That it's, it's something that is naturally found in the world. And that really, that, that help that forces us to, 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 uh, to reckon with queerness in like, in it, to, to really take it for what it is and not, not, uh, kind of, fall back into our natural uh, kind of categorical ways of thinking about it. Yeah, I would say that the inverse is true, that the ideology is something that humans bring to queerness and infect queerness as something that naturally exists. And we say, oh, no, this can't be a thing. We can't allow it. And we stave it off and shame it away, even though it should just be incorporated and affirmed. So then what can, what can the earth teach us about queerness in both gender and sexuality? I think it can free us up from a lot of that thinking that I just mentioned that we kind of impose on what the way that we think things have to be. And the earth is like, you don't have to do it this way. Like there are so many different ways that reality can exist. It doesn't have to be just the specific, you know, heteronormative nuclear family pattern that we've sort of stumbled our way into, but that problem or that format has all of its own kind of issues that we're kind of, that are coming to light now. I think something else about gender too, especially with regards to the earth is um, in the same way that this happens in, in social patterns as well. Um, like some of the idea that ecofeminists are trying to employ is, you know, previously we've used gender kind of as a weapon or as a way of um, discriminating or oppress oppressing. Um, but, but in, you know, the realm of ecofeminism, it's about kind of taking that back um, and using gender as a way of thinking through things. So like Steve said early on, um, these lenses with which we can view the earth. Um, and so whether that's, uh, you know, a, a gendered perspective of, of, um, you know, feminism, um, or queerness, then that in some ways allows us to kind of take those ideas back from those who have previously weaponized them against us. Um, so I think that's a really powerful idea of, of thinking through queerness and the earth as well, um, is that these terms no longer have to be used against us or against the very people that they were initially intended to harm. One of the things I think about when I think about the earth, and 
maybe I can just open this as a question. Why is the earth so diverse? Why is evolution always finding novelty? And why is evolution always creating more novelty and more diversity and more opportunities? And one of the things that I've, I've thought about and I've written about is that evolution is, to use the word wild again, is it's wildly creative. The, the, and it's in that creation uh, that novelty, that diversity, that the earth system continues to, to flower forth into the world, this nature that survives and keeps growing and learn and, 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 and being. The, the, there is a, a genuine sense that that's one of the key features of oddity about life itself is that life itself generates more life, but it's more diverse life and more, um, more novelty, more creativity. And there's something wondrous and healthy about that. It's, it's, it's things, things continue to diversify. Uh, some things go extinct. Uh, the um, this this the conceptual categories that we have, and, and this is drawing on Joan Roughgarden again, but they 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 come and go, and they uh, the categories that we have today are different from the categories we had anciently. I uh, uh, I, I I think. We need to think about that. We need to think about what diversity of life adds to the earth and what diversity of genders add to the, to the, to the, to the wondrousness of earth. And um, in a way, honor those, honor diversity itself as a, as a, as a, a, absolute essential ingredient to creation itself. Earth is such a complex system made up of so many complex systems that if we were all the same, we wouldn't get very far at all. Mm -mm. Like we need to have, it, it's essential to have that diversity mm -hmm. in terms of biology. And then also in terms of perspectives, mm -hmm. like the only way that we can solve a lot of the intersectional issues that we all face is by listening to each other and to the insights that each niche and unique perspective can offer. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm reminded uh, we recorded an episode with Clint Whipple and Deidre uh, Nicole Green um, about Jacob Five, the Lord's Vineyard. And so that episode's gonna be coming out in a couple of weeks and by the time this re releases, it'll already be out. Um, but uh, the in that, the, par the parable of the olive tree, the tree is saved by wild branches. Um, that, that, uh, um, that there's an unscrupulosity about the way that the Lord of the vineyard operates. Um, and I, during that conversation, we, 
we kind of made a parallel between that and kind of the unscrupulosity of the way evolution works. That evolution just will uh, kind of wildly stab out into the dark and see what works and what doesn't. And there's uh, there's power in that. Um, and I so I think that there it's worth instead of because the the servants in the vineyard are constantly being like, uh, Mister Lord of the Vineyard, what are you doing? And the Lord of the Vineyard's like, Cancel me not about what I'm doing. Just go do you know? Just go go follow out my my orders. Um, and uh, I think I think this the the question of queerness is something that we have to that is confronting us. Um, and I. I think we've been asking the wrong question. I think the question we need to be asking is what is, what is the gift that queerness is giving us? What is the power that queerness brings to our, to our spiritual community that can help us, you know, what, what, what in the diversity of queerness is like life giving and life sustaining that's going to like make us more resilient in the long run. And I think that is a, that is a, wildly open-ended question. I don't think that's like a closed question at all, but I think asking that question itself is way more hopeful. Like it, it's, it's, it's almost exciting to ask that kind of question. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Queerness has so much to teach and by its very definition, it's something that transcends boundaries and boxes. And if we do want to encounter further knowledge, light information, we have to be willing to follow and go out into that wilderness and see what we find and grapple with it. Um, uh, we we kind of touched a little bit on the the heteronormative family, um, and I, so I think we we should spend a little bit of time unpacking that. And for the audience, I was air quoting uh, about around heteronormative family. Um, because I think that, you know, as we've talked about that, there are categories and we've kind of get gotten really high centered on some of these categories, um, and that maybe looking towards the earth can help us redefine these categories in ways that might be more helpful or more inclusive. Um, and so the, the family, as we understand it today, might be better called the 19 or the, the 1950s model of the family, um, or what we might call the heterosexual nuclear family, which is two parents of the opposite gender and like two or three kids. Um, why is it important for us to see that this specific arrangement or definition of family is largely a story and also a construction of maybe the last half century? I think it's become this paradigm and ideal that we try to center all of like our, our church teachings. Um, even the very structure of the church is kind of geared around this particular model, which more and more just is not a reality, is not a lived experience for so many people for so many reasons. Like even within my ward, you have people who like are grandparents raising their grandkids, people who are divorced or separated, like even within heterosexual relationships, there's just so much like complexity. And then you add in the reality of queer families, like we do exist. We can't just be left out of the conversation just because it's uncomfortable for people to deal with. And when you're setting up um, this paradigm that people inevitably fall short of, it's harmful for everyone. There are so few people who actually do fit into that specific, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Configuration, I guess, of a family unit. And we do ourselves a disservice when we don't acknowledge the actual experiences that people have. 
in their homes. I think that's right. I, I, um, I have um, single friends who often feel left out, uh, who, who often feel excluded by the discourse that, that, that it is only this kind of family that matters. And um, that harms people. As Ash was saying, that, that, that hurts. And uh, there's, a, there's an article by Blair Osler in Dialogue, and she talks about, about the, um, the way that, that even infertility can create a, a, an exclusionary uh, paradigm for people who, who, who don't don't have children at, at all. And, and I've, I've seen that hurt many times um, with my own family. Um, um, it's, it, by setting up a, a sort of one size fits all family model, it, it's damaging to those who are outside that in every way. Um, both the queer and the, the, the people who have a different situation. And as Ash mentioned, the, the divorce, the single, the, 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 the people who don't have children or can't have children. And it's, I think this is something that I think queerness brings to us in terms of recognizing diversity and the, the the differences that exist in our human family. Yeah, Blair Osler's philosophies on this um, are something I was going to bring up as well, because in their work, they explore other options of what it could look like, rather than saying this one structure, which the nuclear family is untenable, I think, in the long run. It's something that we've all aspired to, but more and more, like, I think it makes sense in a lot of ways to raise our families in a more multi-generational multi-generational and a communal way um, in ways that like reduce the stresses on just like two parents trying to rear kids in this crazy world. Um, but when we talked earlier about this circle of belonging, that's a project that I think Mormonism is uniquely suited to and asking how do we seal together this whole family, this whole human family that we're all a part of in ways that we are not leaving anyone out. And I think that's such a beautiful and godly and necessary thing to aspire to. So we need to start asking questions of how can we expand? How can we include everyone? And that will, by necessity, we'll need to re-examine the structures that we've brought to it in the past. Yeah, I think some, some kind of proof of that too lies within the understanding of, you know, that we allow people to well, I shouldn't say allow, but, you know, even within the church, there's people who get remarried and, um, you know, we've, we've kind of been reassured that all of these things will be worked out, um, you know, in, in the hereafter. Um, and I think sometimes it's frustrating that even that is a response, but, um, sometimes I take it as a little bit of hope too, that, 
you know, maybe, maybe some of these ideas can be worked out here in this life as well. And, um, it's, it's perhaps, um, giving us the go ahead to, to implement some of those ideas here as well. Um, a more inclusive family structure, one that, one that doesn't provide, you know, exclusionary, um, structures, um, and, and kind of imposing one that we think is, uh, perhaps best, um, that there's a lot more room for, uh, non-traditional or previously considered non non-traditional family structures. Um, something else that I was just thinking of too, Ash, while you were, while you were talking is, um, you know, and something that Madison and I have kind of previously covered with other guests on the podcast, um, is this idea of, of Jesus and the savior preaching to those who, um, were not necessarily on, uh, the conventional side of things who were perhaps on, on, what we might consider the outskirts of traditional society. Um, and that that gives us all of the um, understanding that we need to start implementing these, these ideas of inclusion and um, especially familial inclusion. Yeah. Christ was very non-traditional <laughs> and that's part of why his message is so radical and so hard for us to wrap our minds around. Yeah. And it does feel very important to me that we don't just kind of kick all these theological questions further and further down the road. Like, Oh, we'll deal with it in the eternities. Like there is suffering that's happening now. And some yeah. of it is inflicted by people on other people. We don't need to wait for God to deal with all of that. We need to start taking matters into our own hands and saying, how can we reduce this? How can we be a more loving people? Yeah. Absolutely. So how might, you know, as, as, as we, we've discussed that, you know, our, our current definitions of family or our, our pedestalization of a certain kind of family arrangement, um, has kind of left a lot of us, uh, on the outside. Um, how might the earth help us better redefine or better understand the idea of family? You know, I'm thinking about ecology, that the word ecology, it comes from the, the, the Greek or Latin oikos, which means home. Uh, and so I think that, you know, our Steve, I'm, I'm looking at you, um, maybe you can help us unpack this, that how might the earth help us better understand the nature of family? Well, that's such a good question. And I, I, the, the one thing I've, noticed about um, each ecological systems. Um, I, 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 a couple of things that, that come to mind about that. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that, and this, this is um, a bit of maybe not where you want to go, but with a conservation bent. Um, one of the things that that too often I think uh, patriarchal societies do is they impose a kind of top-down power. The the father um, that I was I was just uh, reading a book that that talked about the way that that. Um, kings in Europe were modeled on the patriarchal family hierarchy. And one of, one of the things 
that you see in ecosystems in a way is this distribution of power rather than rather than a top-down hierarchy like we see in in the idea of kings or in fathers imposing their will on the family is that it becomes unstable uh, things that bubble up from the bottom things uh, family dynamics in in terms of an equality of, of of, of um, participation and perspective and all of this, I, I think represents an ecological notion of, of emergence rather than, than uh, this, this kind of patri patriarchal uh, father whose demand makes the demands on everybody else is turns out to be really toxic. It's, it's bad for the father as well. It's not just, it's just not bad for a family where there's an, uh, an authoritative patriarch at the head. It's bad for the father. It's bad for everybody. And, and ecosystems are kind of, they're, of course, I don't want to impose too much on this because they're highly competitive. There's, there's attempts to make the other elements go extinct. So there's not you know, this, this isn't a, a nice world, so to speak, but it is a world that emerges from the participation of everybody. Uh, and, and to me, that's a nice model for the family where, where there is a participatory element of everyone um, in, in the family. So for me, that's, that's kind of uh, where I see um, ecosystems being informative. And when humans try to impose their will on the land, or, you know, for example, just to be controversial, this Utah Lake disaster, uh. where they're trying to, trying to destroy a very important ecosystem to make money, that's kind of the patriarchal model where, where they believe that what they are imposing on the lake is better than the lake is is and and that's the kind of model that that causes ecological destruction instability it's it's in every way a structure of harm and so when when we think about how do we structure the family that's not a good model that's not a good model that's a that's a model of destruction and and it's 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 that's proven uh, the, the, the case again and again um, the the, the uh, things like spousal abuse and all these kinds of things arise from that authoritarian uh, authoritarian perspective and so for me that's a good model this this idea of of trying to live with the land trying to 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 to, to to actually be a steward isn't to impose your will on it. It's to let the earth teach you how to, how to um, be with the land and, and let the land bear fruit for you rather than impose these kinds of structures. Yeah, just that last bit is making me think that there's this element of radical acceptance, a sort of like letting go and a surrender to the way that things already are structured naturally and being able to sit with, there can be discomfort in that. You know, there's, 
we have these urges to want to be the most powerful, to seize up power. Maybe we have fears of scarcity or being less than, and to be able to kind of put those aside and say, okay, the earth is abundant. There is what we need there. We don't have to fight each other for it. Maybe that could be something that could be leaned into. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I, I think about um, some of the most intimate um, theology we have in, in, in terms of, of temple, the, 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 the people interested in power are not the people we want to emulate. <laughs> They're trying to seize power are not the people we want to emulate. Um, the, the, the sort of imposition of what can be done with money is not the right question in regards to the earth. So, yeah, and a lot of it ties back into becoming more grounded, more rooted, and more reconnected with the earth. Mm -hmm. Just so much modern life is just so far detached and removed from it that it becomes very easy to forget yeah. our actual roots. I feel like I can already hear a little bit of a rebuttal forming uh, about how just because something is natural or wild or we find it in the natural world doesn't necessarily mean it's good or moral. Um, and how the natural man is an enemy to God. Can we un unpack this naturalness a little bit? Because there's a lot that happens in, naturally in nature that it's that's like harsh and violent and horrifying. But my gut tells me that queerness in nature is not in the same category. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, because it's not as clear cut as saying that everything that is natural is great and not everything made by humans is terrible. Like there's a lot of good stuff that we can come up with as well. Um, and I think the question for me is sort of like, what is the outcome of the thing? Um, if it's something that drives us to greater goodness and more love and more wholeness and more inclusion, then it's worthy of emulating whether it comes from nature itself or from human-made thinking. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I talk about this in bioethics all the time. You can't derive an ought from an is. And our ethical responses are, are defi definitely grounded in, in, in what it means to be a human. Um, animals have no ethical response they can't, they can't form an, an ethical response. Um, but we can, we can look at nature and model what works, what's sustainable. And, and I, I love what Ash said there about, does it, does it create more inclusion? Does it create more love? That's, that's our highest ethical aspiration, I think. I think in all all of the all of the axial religions, as Karen Karen Armstrong has written, there is this element of care. One of one of the things that are, that's interesting is when when um, humans and closely related um, species like Neanderthals, one of the the, the 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 strange markers that appears is the care for the the elderly and the disabled, they they were they were honored and cared for, and we have their grave sites that 
that there were people who obviously couldn't survive on their own. And when we talk about humanity, when we talk about the humanities, the, the human sciences, there is this element that it means something to, to care for others. And I think we are leaving our humanness in a way if we're not taking care of, of the other, if we're not caring for the, the like the, the Neanderthals did and the early humans, they were caring for people that had no utility in their culture. They couldn't hunt, they couldn't gather, they couldn't do any of those things. And yet they were honored and cared for and loved, even though from, from a purely utilitarian tribal perspective, they're not contributing in the same way as, 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 as the, the, the others. And this is a, a widespread human trait that caring for those who are a part of our group is an element of being human. And I like that. I like that vision of, of, of what it means to be human. I like that, that, that what it means to be a Latter-day Saint uh, as well that we can reach out and embrace um, people with different perspectives and different sentiments and different viewpoints and different experiences, most of all, I think. It's definitely to our detriment when we don't honor all of those insights and experiences. I'm just thinking about like how this current COVID-19 pandemic has been handled and mishandled. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the disability community that has been from very early on, there have been warning signs like, okay, we know that this is going to play out a certain way. You guys should listen to us because we've seen it before. And people don't tend to listen because those voices are seen as maybe not relevant, maybe not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And I think if we would have heeded some of those warnings, we'd be in a lot better spot than we are now. That's right. Um, is the... Uh, you know, throughout this conversation, we've been kind of using the earth a little bit of it as a text, uh, in regards to, you know, we're reading it as, as a text. Um, is the earth a trustworthy text to read in regards to sexuality? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of the most foundational text that we have. And so I think there's a little, a little bit of trust in God would give that to us as a template. I hope it would be good and be leading us in good directions. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. I, I've often argued, and I have to think about it more. Um, Madison, your thoughts about, about um, not deriving is's from, or oughts from is's, um, but I think about this idea of reality. This is what science deals with. Is science is in fact reading the text of what the what the world, what what the realities that we're trying to discover uh, are. We, um, and it's it's a complex process. It's not an easy process to to draw 
what's what's what underlies everything. What is an ecosystem? What is a biological being? All these questions that science deals with, they they try to probe that question: is what is reality teaching us? What is and 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 so I think Ash is right. There's this sense of what is the earth teaching us about diversity? Why does it appear again and again? Why is it valued? And, and what does it mean that this diversity often turns out to be what rescues the earth? Uh, when, we, when we look at the, the earth, we see this, that in terms of, um, of, of ecosystems and other things, it's the more diverse often, not always, but often that's more resilient and allows survival of uh, extinction. When, 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 when organisms become too, too non-diverse, the ecosystem itself can become fragile and break easy. And so when we're not honoring diversity, I think we often become a, a, a fragile society that, that, that can shatter. I, I, we may be seeing, seeing elements of that shattering in terms of, of disallowing diversity, even in the present moment. Uh, I mean, we're in a really messy time in a lot of ways. And I think, uh, one of the ways that that's manifest is, is the perception that there's only one perspective that's right. And that's creating kind of a, a fragility to, to the, 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 the structures and institutions of, of the world everywhere. And I think that this is a moment where the embracing diversity has become much more important. I tend to think of the earth as not only our home, but also a body that essentially we're little microorganisms living on top of, right? And um, in conversation with. And so I think that the health of the earth tells us a lot about the trajectories that we're on um, as humans, because we're just part of this greater whole. And if we're doing things that are harming the earth, it harms the body of the earth that we live on. So that can kind of be a, a barometer of how we're doing, you know, is the earth thriving or is it struggling? And we can kind of determine from there what actions we need to take. Well said. Yeah, you've struck a chord with me. That's that's kind of the whole, um, uh, the, the larger encompassing thought behind my, my thesis project actually. So, um, but I just think it's so true that we we find so many parallels between, um, you know, our lives, particularly to me, I feel like there, there are so many parallels between um, our body and the earth as a body. Um, but even beyond that, just the way that we recognize the, the systems of the earth, um, uh, like you said, Steve, and, and I think, um, you know, not to be redundant, but I do think that there's so much to be seen within the diversity of the earth, um, and the way that that actually strengthens those systems, um, 
and, and how we read our own, you know, social systems as well. So I think, you know, that, that is again, to the, the truth of the text of the earth, um, just one more element of, of kind of strengthening that argument as well. Yeah. I'm reminded of, uh, Aldo Leopold in the land, the land ethic, um, he, uh, he has this, uh, this kind of a methodology for determining whether or not something's right. Quote, he says, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. And it is wrong when it tends otherwise. And I think as a metric for determining the, the goodness of things, right. Uh, that is a fantastic metric. Um, because I think that what is, uh, if atonement is the divine solution to all of reality, and atonement is simply at one mint or the bringing together of, di- of disparate or different parts. Um, and then separation is the problem. So that anything that increases relationality and communion is good and right. Anything that separates and divides without reunifying is wrong. Um, and uh, I think we, we, we kind of touched that at the beginning, Ash. I think you, you said something along those lines as well. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of, of how, how can we learn how to trust the earth as a text, I think those are good scales for which to, or for how to determine whether or not we're on the right track is, does it tend to increase the integrity and the beauty of our community? Um, and I think that's really kind of a, a great place to, to leave that one. Um, let's jump into the, the final little section right here. Um, Abby's got five minutes before her laptop dies. <laughs> so we might oh, no. lose her. Sorry. I left my charger at my office. So, um, so, uh, as we've been exploring the season that there is spiritual power in wilderness and wild things and wild action. Um, and we've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but what is the spiritual power of queerness? I know that we're not going to be able to come up with any definitive answers here, and I don't think we should come up with definitive answers, but I think it's worth asking ourselves, what is the spiritual power of queerness? Yeah, I talked a bit about this earlier, but to me, queerness has this innate ability to challenge us, to make us reconsider everything that we've held to be true and make us question, is that really the way that things are and is it the way that things should be? And so for me, that brings in an element of renewal to theology, to society, even to someone's sense of self. It's this intentional um, being with, you know, what does even what does gender even mean? You know, what does a romantic relationship even mean? There are so many different ways that it can be defined that it's worth um, listening to a broad variety of experiences with what that can mean in different situations for different people. It can give us so many different answers that maybe we haven't even had questions for yet. Thank you for joining us in the Spiritual Wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. 
For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts.